How do you know you're right and someone else is wrong? Like, what is the, what's the grid that you would use for such an enterprise? So let's, let's say you're in a fight with your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend or roommate or parent or even like a coworker. Like, let's say you have a few minutes of reflection in that fight because lots of times if you're in a fight, you don't have moments of reflection. That's why you're in the fight. But let's say you have a few moments of reflection either because you like went off for a walk to cool down or you took a drive or the argument did this like Marshall and Lily thing, like time out and then you're going to come back, whatever it is. What do you say to yourself in that moment to assure yourself that you're righteous, that you are the one that's in the right in the argument? Like, Like maybe you lean into history, that place of, you always do this, right? Or maybe you trust your powers of like deductive reasoning. Like your argumentation is always so solid. And maybe you find yourself resting in the facts. The facts that include the latest thing that your counselor told you in the last meeting that you had or your friends told you who intimately knows the details. Or maybe right and wrong have, have long left your purview. And you're just enraged. And no level of convincing or arguing is required because you know you are right. Now Jesus tells us in this parable, we're going to read here in a second, that that, uh, that there are those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. There's two things there, conjoined, trusting in self and righteous. Does anything drive home what happens when we fight or argue, or if you are too averse to fighting and arguing, the dialogue you carry on with yourself more than these two things, self and righteous? Then notice, notice here in just a second, the second address, the kissing cousin of the conjoined twin of self-righteousness is treating others with contempt. I love uh, the Pixar movie um, that talks about the inner workings of the self, and they included one called disgust. Because if there's one primary emotion in our tool belts, it's that one. What disgusts you? What disgusts you? Maybe it's a person. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's their views on whatever you want to put in the blank. Maybe it's a habit. Like the person you love the most in the world continues to do even though you've made it quite clear that you're disgusted by it. Maybe it's a tribe or a group or a stance or an ideology or just the way they think. How can anyone think that way? Why do you have to chew so loud? They always talk about themselves. They make every story in some way about them. They have so much stuff. They go on so many trips. I'm glad I'm not like them. I don't have to put all that on social media. I'm hardly on there, if I'm honest. I don't have to be going all the time. I mean, geez, can you stay home once in a while? Where are your kids? Do you just leave them there or anywhere? Where are they? We do this. We do this with schools. I can't believe their kids go there. 
We do it with habits. We do it with body types. We have an itchy trigger for disgust. Now, I think, before we read the, te- the text, we can develop a working list, a sort of punch list for the two sides of the coin, self-righteousness and contempt. What are you right about and self-congratulatory about? And who disgusts you about the way they move in the world? There's a progression here. Whenever you are self-righteous, you will generate your own righteousness and will view others with contempt. And whenever you treat another with contempt, you will grow in your self-righteousness. And let me add a third. Can you be honest about this with yourself and with God? Because this is part of the conundrum of it all. Admitting that you do this and you do it all the time. That you and I are constantly doing this, these like mental and spiritual calisthenics of who's right, who's wrong, and who's to blame. And we're constantly moving along this sliding scale of righteousness and disgust. Often sliding most regularly towards the things we hate the most because those things are evil, wrong, gross, sad. Jesus addresses this. He addresses those of us who think we're righteous. Those of us who are disgusted by everyone else's unrighteousness with this parable. Hear it from Luke chapter 18. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to the house justified rather than the other. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. See, this parable comes after a series of illustrations about what Jesus means by faith and, bef- and he repeats the third time, and before he repeats the third time that he's going to die and rise again. Remember, the book of Luke is kind of built on this, like building up to and going down to. And so Jesus builds up to this place where he's going to go down to Jerusalem. He has this ministry that's ascending, and now he's on the backside of his ministry life and career. And for the third time, he tells his disciples, look, we're going down to Jerusalem. And when I get there, I'm going to die. So he talks about faith, and then he talks about what's to come for him and the disciples in Jerusalem. Now Jesus here gives two characters. Two men, we're told, come up to the temple to pray. First, the Pharisee. Now Jesus, of course, doesn't hold back from giving, um, uh, giving it just to the, the Pharisees here. But let's start by giving this Pharisee some credit. He's a good man. 
just on the face value of his confession, without any pretense of him, there's nothing about him being duplicitous. There's nothing about him being a hypocrite. He, he is one, we're told in the, the parable, who puts his money where his mouth is. He isn't a womanizer. He doesn't have any paternity suits pending. He isn't cheating his family out of an inheritance. He, he isn't taking his taxes from Caesar. He, he works hard. He's honest. He's, he's fair. He's faithful to his wife. He's patient with his kids. He's good. He isn't just good. He's religious. In fact, deeply so. He is disciplined in his pursuit of God. He, he goes beyond the law in fasting twice a week and tithing on all of his income. And he does this as an act of sacrifice. Even maybe a sense of his love for God. He is devoted. That's why he's at the temple. He's there to pray, to give glory to God. He's like, God, my, my life is good, like, like really good, and I'm really thankful. And then the second character comes into view, a publican, a tax collector. Now, the listeners of this parable would have recognized him. He was a crook, a legal crook, like the worst kind of crook, like Rome is on his side. He's like the underbully to the bully, who's worse than the bully, the, the servant who's twice the son of hell. He, he collects money for Rome from his own people, and then he skims off the top. He takes a little extra for himself. Always, he exploits, he, he steals he flaunts it, and he's untouchable. And to his people, he's Benedict Arnold. He is a traitor. And he isn't religious. He, he doesn't have the discipline to be religious, not in any spiritual sense. He doesn't practice Torah. He, he's long ago neglected even the thought of it. And maybe after a bender, he finds himself here. With all the guilt catching up, after all the long nights full of women and money and gambling and Johnny Walker Blue, it's caught up to him. And the shame of illegitimacy and betrayal has wrecked him. He doesn't know where even to go on the Sabbath, but he ends up here, and he's there with our good religious family man to pray. And it's shocking, maybe for us, we could say it in some other ways. Like, Jesus presents these two characters, two people who come up to pray. One is a respected elder, and the other is a member of the KKK. He's a racist. Two people come up to church to pray. One of them is a faithful deacon who's been serving for many years, and the other is a convicted sex offender. Two people come up to pray. One of them is a known, trusted civic leader, and the other is a drug dealer, a sex worker, a trafficker. Two people come up to pray, one a conservative, one a progressive. The tax collector could be all those or something else. The thing that we think of when we're honest about who and what disgust us. 
And this is when our Pharisee spots him. He makes sense in this moment to just thank God, thank God for his happy state that he finds himself in. Thank God, thank God for my wife and my kids and my job and all my prosperity. Thank God for me being here. And thank God I'm not like that guy. I mean, God, you've spared me from being like him. You've spared me from making compromises. You've spared me from selling my soul to, the, to Rome. I'm not a pariah like him. Thank God. Thank God I'm not like him. Poor soul. Notice all the eyes. There's five of them, each dripping with deep sincerity. This man, according to Dale Ralph Davis, has beautiful religious feelings when he went to the temple. He felt right with God. He felt right with his life. So comforting were his religious feelings that he felt sure of his position in the kingdom of God. In fact, his heart told him so. And so he prays, thanking God he's not like this other man. The tax collector walks in, stays at a distance, we're told, maybe even on the outer courts of the temple. He certainly isn't coming near where the more religious people would be. What am I even doing here? His brow is lowered. He, he won't even look up. I, I don't belong here is what every part of his body language says. And yet this is just where... I need to be. We're told he beats his breast, indicating the anguish and despair that he feels. And he prays, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Bound up in this word mercy is actually not just a cry for God to be merciful, but it's also a cry for atonement. God, be merciful to me, he is praying, and cover my sins. Forgive me. Now, now nudge yourselves in between these two. Be the, the meat and the cheese of this sandwich for a second. You're at the temple. Who do you identify with? Who, who do you circle up to greet? Who do you make room for? Now, Jesus is leaning into us here, and it's kind of impossible, right? He, he's leaning into us. Who are you? Who do you identify with? What about God? Do you see this? The Pharisee seems the part. He looks the part. He appears righteous. I mean, look at his life, especially in comparison. And that's the game, right? That, that's the game we play with ourselves and with each other. The game that God says we can't win, but we play it anyway. And Jesus says, oh, brother and sister, you are, you're so much worse off than him, actually. I mean, you're both in bad shape, but he gets it. And you don't. See, the publican sees that he has no hope. 
except as we say in our membership vows, save in your sovereign mercy. In fact, the tax man says, not that he is a sinner, but the definite article, the sinner. There isn't just error here, mistakes, a little overlooking of things for him, a a little overlooking of the good he should do, and a little bit of doing the bad he shouldn't do. What he sees in this moment is that he is dead, unable to rectify his standing before a holy God, without hope except in God's mercy. Have you ever been in a place like that? Where you were so caught, so done, the place of the bottoms of the bottoms, where there was no possibility for you to pontificate that you could be found. Oh, I, I, I think for some of us, this is hard for us to identify. I remember when I was 14, um, I was at a JCPenney and I, I walked out with a sweater that I didn't buy, stuffed in a sack that I brought. And, and I remember the moment when they said, Sir, sir, do you have a receipt for what's in your bag? And I was caught. And then I remember having to make a call to my dad and mom, and I was caught. There was no, like, getting out of it. There was no, like, oh, I made a mistake. I accidentally stuffed the sweater in the bag. I was undone. My mom was so, and I think I've said this maybe years ago, but my mom was so mad that she couldn't even, like, talk to me. Um, And my dad, who actually had the most to lose because he was in retail, he worked at Coronado uh, Center for a lot of years. He actually knew the acting manager on duty at JCPenney. And he was merciful to me. Have you ever been in that place where the only cry, the only prayer that you can pray is one of mercy? A place where you're caught a place where you thought you were immune to some sin, only to find yourself falling headlong into that sin. What do you do when that vice then becomes the vice that you keep returning to over and over and over again? Jesus is saying to all of us who think we are right and to all of us who think we are wrong, that there's no human goodness, that's enough. He says, I tell you, this man, the publican, the tax collector, the sinner, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, the unrighteous are made righteous. Why? Well, in this parable... Notice this too, that that Jesus doesn't like tease all this out for us. He doesn't put it in some kind of like neat box for, well, he prayed this prayer and he trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of his sins, right? What does the man do? 
He acknowledges his sin. He cries out for mercy and atonement. And Jesus says this man is the one who is justified. The unrighteous are made righteous only because of the mercy and forgiveness of God. Those who look righteous and act righteous are only, hear this, only actually made righteous by the mercy and forgiveness of God. This is the scandal of grace. The the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a contrite heart. We're told in the Psalms, he will not despise that. Who is like you, O God, in lamentations, pardoning guilt, passing over sin? He does not retain his anger forever, but he delights to show mercy, and he will have compassion on us and subdue, overcome our guilt. Oh man, if that doesn't describe what God does here with this wicked tax collector, he subdues all that guilt, beating his breast, his buried brow, all of that shame, he subdues. When he says this sinner left justified. Friends, God loves you. He loves you right now as you sit, as you are. Do you believe it? Do you believe that the well of grace is so deep that when you're plunged beneath the flood, even those sins, the sins you hide in comparison and arguments and platitudes and Instagram posts and filters, that those are covered. Because if you believe the well is that deep, then you can present yourself holy to this God, all of yourself, the sinner, and cry for mercy. And so my invitation to you this morning is receive this grace. Now the Pharisee can't receive the grace because he loves his self-justification. We do too. We, We will virtue signal the heck out of anything and everything. You might not even be on social media. Guess what? You still signal your virtues. It's what we do. Gene Veith, uh, the writer, says, the concept of justification is not some arcane theological concept. It is something, he says, we are preoccupied with all the time. We are always engaged in the practice of trying to justify ourselves. Underlying the need to be justified is our yearning for approval, for affirmation, for thinking our existence matters in some positive way, and for our need of life to be worthwhile. If that doesn't describe this generation, nothing does. He goes on to say, it is surely telling that in a culture that supposedly cares nothing about morality, that is relativistic, that rejects certain absolutes, that is maybe immoral, maybe even flagrantly so, is actually full of moral indignation, righteous criticism, and virtue signaling. It points to our primal need to be justified and our inability to justify ourselves. Our love for justification is so strong 
that we run from grace and keep coming back to law. I want you to listen to this. This comes from Robert Capon, and I think he gets at the heart of something for us, and for me, anyway. He says, while we sometimes catch a glimpse of it, our love for justification by works is so profound that at first opportunity, we run from the strange light of grace straight back to the familiar darkness of the law. What he means by that is we run from grace to meriting our own salvation in the law. You don't believe me? I'll prove it to you. The publican, the tax collector, goes down to his house justified, we're told, rather than the other. And you say, I say, yeah, indeed. Now, let me follow him, follow him in your mind as he goes through the next week. He lives his life. He comes back to the temple to pray. What is it that you want to see him doing in that week? What do you want to see yourself doing? What does your moral sense tell you he ought to at least try to accomplish? Aren't you itching as his spiritual advisor to urge him into another line of work? something maybe a little more upright than putting the arm on his fellow countrymen for fun and profit? In short, don't you feel compelled to insist upon at least a little reform? To help you be as clear as you can about your feelings, Capon says, let me set you uh, two exercises. For the first, take him back to the temple one week later and have him go back there with nothing in his life reformed. Walk him in this week as he walked in last week. After seven full days of skimming, wrenching, high-priced scotch, put him through the same routine, eyes down, breast smitten, God be merciful and all that. Now, I trust you see that on the basis of the parable as told, God will not mend his divine ways any more than the publican did his wicked ones. God will do this week exactly what he did last week because the publican is the same this week as he was last week. He's still dead and he admits it. God, in short, will send him down to his house justified. The question in this first exercise, do you like that? And the answer, of course, is that you don't you choke a little bit on the unfairness of it. That rat is getting off free. For the second exercise, therefore, take him back to the temple with at least some reform. No wrenching this week. Perhaps drinking cheaper scotch. Giving the difference to some foundation. What do you think of him now? What is it that you want God to do with him? Question him about the extent to which he mended his ways. Why? If God didn't count the Pharisees' impressive list, why should he bother with his two-bit one? Or do you want God to look on his heart, not on his list, and commend him for good intentions at least? Why? Capon says the point of the parable was the tax collector confessed that he was dead. Not that his heart wasn't in the right place. 
Why are you so bent on destroying the story by sending the tax collector back with the Pharisee's speech in his pocket? The honest answer is that while we understand the thrust of the parable with our mind, our heart has a desperate need to believe its exact opposite. And so does mine. We all long to establish our identity by seeing ourselves approved in other people's eyes. Capon says, we spend our days preening ourselves before a mirror of their opinion so we will not have to think about the nightmare of appearing before them naked and uncombed. And we hate this parable because it says plainly that it's the nightmare which is the truth of our condition. We fear the tax collector's acceptance because we know precisely what it means. It means that we'll never be free until we are dead to the whole business of justifying ourselves. But since that business is our life, that means not until we're dead. And to take that step and to bank it all, not on our righteousness, but on an alien one, is terrifying. It's way more fun to play the self-justification game, the comparison game, the blame game, the my tribe versus your tribe game. You might want to quibble with Capon here. I mean, shouldn't there be progress? Yeah, sure. But if our posture and forward movement is anything, but God have mercy on me, the sinner, then we've begun traversing back into the game of self-justification and the law. The, the way forward for us is that prayer. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Getting used to the scandal of grace so much that we receive it, that we receive that grace as something we cannot earn our own, that belongs totally and completely on the Christ who lived the life we couldn't live, died the death we shouldn't die. We put ourselves such in his place, his life for my life, his righteousness for my righteousness, his death for my death, and we walk out of the temple one step, kind of like a baby steps the elevator. You ever seen the movie, What About Bob? God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Out the door of this church. God, have mercy on me, the sinner, as I get in my car. As I drive home. As I have that argument where I'm trying to justify myself with my spouse, my roommate, as I go to work and have a disagreement about some postulate and some formula or some turning of a satellite. God, have mercy on me, the sinner. When I'm tempted to hide what 
makes me feel most exposed, when I'm tempted to run from God in that hiding and exposure, God have mercy on me, the sinner, when when I'm tempted to compare myself and think that somehow in the comparison, I am better, I am okay, God have mercy on me, the sinner. May God help us, church, to do such a thing. Let's pray. God, we cry out to you this morning that you might have mercy on us. That you might have mercy on us by covering our sin, forgiving us. That, that as we come each and every Sunday to this place, as we come each and every Sunday to this table, we, we don't come exalting ourselves. But we come with the words, God have mercy on me, the sinner. Lord have mercy. Christ have mercy. Amen.